Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unrestricted. This is Steve Savitsky. And today I'm actually recording from Yerushalayim, Ira Kodesh. And I have with me a very, very interesting, important person in the Jewish world, Gary E. Jacobs. I, I don't want, I'm not going to disclose, I don't want anyone to know what the E stands for. Gary was the uh, past chairman of the uh, JCC Association of North America. And it's a great pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. So you are head of the JCC, it's a very important organization. Everyone knows the JCC, but maybe you could just succinctly tell us a little bit about the goals and the mission of the JCC. Sure, the JCC Association, sort of the umbrella organization for about 170 JCCs and camps uh, in North America, so that's the US and Canada. And we do a lot of work in bringing people together in order to help the field do what it, what it needs to do and to improve. We sort of have two missions. One is obviously providing services for the local JCCs and camps. The other one is how are we going to help lead the North American Jewish community as we, as we go moving forward. Because that's important. That's what I really want to talk a little bit about. You know, how do we lead the North American Jewish community? What do we do with it? And your thoughts on where we're going and what we have to do to uh, fix it, make it better than it is. So first, let's talk a little bit about your experiences as a Chairman of JCC, was it a very involved position? Did you have to travel a lot? Well, I sort of had that interesting time with the uh, pandemic going on. So the first year and a half, I, I was installed in 2018. So the first year and a half was, how are we moving forward? Look, what kind of great grants and, and large grants can we get from major foundations? Especially since they'd rather work with us as, an, as the institution, and then we would hand out the grants to the local JCCs. Oh. And then, and, but then COVID hit, and all of a sudden we were in a different mode. So that mode was, we are going to stop our dues for the JCC so that they can invest that money back in their own campuses and locals. And obviously then we had to reduce our staff a little bit and figure out how we can work remotely just like everybody else had to. But how do we actually work with the field in order to keep all those JCCs open and running when the COVID was going on while people weren't willing to come into Physical, physical, physical space. Right. And so we really worked hard on trying to create virtual programming. Um, we worked with our JCCs up in Toronto, Canada with virtual JCC. We had hundreds of meetings with the local um, CEOs and executive directors talking about all the different professional areas there. I ran four or five sessions with the, with the lay leaders of these different JCCs, again, of how we're going to keep the J's open how we're going to keep them doing what we need them to do in their local communities, providing early child education, providing space for students to come in who can't go to a school, et cetera. And so that's really where it was for those two years. And then sort of at the tail end of it, we got to thinking again about, all right, what's the, what's the day after and what do we do afterwards? Now, did any of them actually close during the, I mean, for good at the end? Nobody has closed for good. Uh, everybody has reopened. A lot of them are doing very well right now, but there's still strains on the, on the budgets. I would say that the silver lining out of this, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste, 
was that it gave everybody an opportunity to step back for a second and think strategically about where JCCs could go and also about what kind of connections we can make within the communities. You know, typically there's been this wall between JCCs and synagogues. And during the pandemic, it was really an opportunity to break down that wall. And we saw that in San Diego with my local JCC, with summer camp where we couldn't bust the kids in, but we could make pro we could make partnerships with the with the synagogues out in the other areas, and run our camp at their campuses so the kids could actually have a, a Jewish summer camp. So it's really interesting. How many of them actually have the early childhood component built in? Out of the 170, probably 160 have some kind of early really? childhood education. So that's a great thing. I know that in my own community, I live right. in New York in the Five Towns, JCC is flourishing. Yes. It's unbelievable. People, you know, hard to get in. Yes. It's actually hard to get in. So that's right. really, really interesting. So that must be a good source of revenue for the JCCs, I guess. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of our uh, places where we run, where we actually uh, have a net uh, profit so that we can use those dollars to help run other services within the, in, within the JCCs. Now, early childhood education in specific, obviously, we want to make sure that every Jewish child that wants that education can get it. And right now, we have classrooms that are empty because we don't have teachers. JCC preschool teachers certainly are not the highest paid. It's not a great right. profession, so to speak. And so we've now partnered with JFNA and URJ, the Jewish Federation of North America and the Union of Foreign Judaism, to create what's called Project 412 which is a way to recruit, train, and really professionalize ECE uh, teachers so that we can, again, provide education for every Jewish student that wants it. The other way to think to do as well is let the local JCC be the center of excellence for early education within the community, but again, partner with, with other synagogues, partner with other institutions so that we have more spaces available for these kids that doesn't have to be at the JCC. But from you. a community point of view, let's figure out how to get all the kids in there that want to be there. So you kind of, you run it, but it may be in different locations. We may not even run it. We may just say, look, here's a great program that we have. Let us help train your teachers and you guys do what you, you want to do. But look at us as a center of excellence for early childhood education. And what about the camps? These are, these are mostly day camps, aren't they? Well, the, the local campuses are day camps, but, but a lot of our camps are actually residential camps as well. So we actually support 20 or 30 residential camps, some right. that are associated with a local JCC and some that are independent. Well, it's really amazing. I don't think people really understand the breadth and depth of what the JCCs really do. I mean, they're really, they're really incredible. And there's no question that you said there are like 170 in North America. Right. Wow, that's a, that's, a, that's a big number, you know? Yeah. Before the pandemic, we saw about one and a half million people a week through all those JCCs. A million of them were Jewish, and a half a million of them were, were general, uh, you know, right. areas, uh, non-Jews. And so we see the most people of any Jewish institution in North America. And that gives us the, a great ability to help influence where the Jewish community goes, and also to act as a great resource between the Jewish and non-Jewish community. Right. Yeah, no, no, it's always good. I always love it when I go to JCCs and uh, you see the diversity of it's, the people who belong there. And it's... Uh, it's a tribute, I think, to what you guys have done. Right? You can go to almost any city in the United States, and there's a JCC yeah. that's there and always uh, dedicated by somebody, <laughs> Mr. or Mrs., whatever it is. But right. Thank God they're always dedicated by somebody, that's right. which, is, which is fantastic. So when you kind of look at the mission statement of the JCCs, and I understand it a little bit better now. So how, you know, look, we all know, we, you know, it's, we have to be honest 
that we've got a problem in, in, in North America. The diaspora, we have a problem. Intermarriage is a major issue. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to figure out a way of keeping Jewish people Jewish. So what, how do you see the role of the JCC in trying to deal with that issue? Well, a lot of it goes back to the early charge education piece because we need to embrace those interfaith marriages because they're happening. We're not going to stop it. And so how do we make that family feel welcome coming into a Jewish space within a JCC and then have their children get, get at least a Jewish education at the early child education level so they have a base of right. base there. And we have stories like it. our CFO at our JCC was not Jewish, uh, but her son went to the JCC preschool and she would talk about the fact that on Fridays he wanted to have Shabbat, even though he wasn't Jewish because that's what he grew right. up. So if we can continue to instill that kind of values and those kind of desires within these young kids, they'll lead the families into being deeper in their Judaism, whatever, however that, that plays out. And so this is our, our opportunity to make sure that those families, even with multi-faith parents, that those kids have that Judaic background, at least early on, so that they have something to build upon. Okay. And I know that like, if you go to a JCC, whenever you go, there's always like posters for the Chagim, and so it's a very cultural, from a cultural point of view, people certainly know it's a Jewish place when you come right. into it, which I like. I guess, is there any curriculum that you set up? Do they, if you're a JCC, are you totally independent, or you have to follow certain norms? Every JCC is an independent 501c3. Really? And so we can't tell them, hey, you're going to have to do this. What we try and do is bring people together from the movement and say, what are the areas that, that you need that we can help with? Where's the expertise within the movement, or if we have to find somebody from outside the movement? And then how do we create a program or take a program that's already in an existing JCC and scale it? And so it's not always about us creating everything. It's about us finding the best of class in each JCC and then using that to scale to the movement. And so they decide on their own, even as far as holidays. In other words, if JCC says, I want to be open on Yom Kippur, they can be open they on can Yom Kippur. Be open, right. Do you have a lot? What do, I wonder how many are open. I don't know how many are open on Yom Kippur. The, uh, I know ours is not. Um, a lot of them are open on Shabbat now. Right. And again, if you think about it, if the idea is to increase the pie of Jewish people participating in, in some form of Judaism, right. being Jewish, then the synagogues say, well, you shouldn't have said in the past, you shouldn't be open on Shabbat because you're keeping people from going to shul, and we're saying those people aren't going to shul anyway. <laughs> right, right, exactly, right, exactly. <laughs> so let us, let, us have, let us bring them here to give them some form of Judaism. Right. You know, I think it's an interesting balance because yes. you do certainly do have an opportunity to touch them at a very young age and uh, to, to make them understand their Jewish heritage and culture, and yet at the same time you don't want to mandate uh, it's a very interesting. I think you guys are in a very pivotal position to really kind of move the, the needle yes. depending on, on what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So you had the job. I mean, I met you when you were the chairman. <laughs> right. So do you miss it? I do. You know, it was a four-year term. It was very... And four years. Four not years. Bad. That's yes. not bad. Very fast four years. And just, you know, I always like to be heavily involved in whatever I'm, in, whatever I'm taking part of. And so it was very good. And I was able to go out to several JCCs meet with their boards, help them reflect on what's going on and looking at it also from a national and continental level, not just your local level. Right. And what other expertise I can bring in for governance or helping the, the chairs or presidents of those locals. So we talked about this a little bit, but what, what role do you see former presidents playing in an organization? I actually right now chair the governance committee. Oh, that's, that's, how, that's how it works at, at JCC oh, okay. Association. Okay, good. 
So I have four years of that and governance and nominations. So that's that'll be my role going forward. I think you know there's kind of a difference between the immediate past president and then the, our chair, and then the past chairs beyond that. Right. At our local J, we do have a president's count advisory council, so right. the CEO can call us whenever she wants to bring us together. And I think the same thing happens here, where there's an issue that we that we believe we can get good guidance and advice from past chairs. Let's get everybody together and figure it out. And every time we have a board meeting, we do have a past chairs dinner. So again, we bring it all nice. together. That's really wonderful. Now I know that. Your family, I don't know that much about your family other than you have a daughter who's actually a member of Congress. Yes. Which is, that must be pretty <laughs> pretty exciting, right? Now, where is she a congresswoman from? Right. So she represents California uh, 51, which is basically the middle part of San Diego and, uh, and north. And uh, she's really enjoying it. You know, she's very much into child po- childhood poverty and, and hungry and homeless and so on and what she can do. From a congressional level, she sits on the Armed Services Committee oh, and nice. on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, that's good to have that. Great. Yes. Okay, we're happy about that. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So she's very busy. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see how she does now that she's in the minority, not, not right. the majority. Right. Um, but she also sits on the, the Democratic Caucus Leadership Council, representing those representatives who are five terms or less. Oh, really? Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Now, how did, did she get involved? Because the family was involved in politics, or well. we have always been very involved in politics. When we first moved to La Jolla, California, and La Jolla were much more red than they are now. Yeah, much more, very much a blue state now. And so, my parents actually got involved in La Jolla Democratic Club, and actually made it the largest Democratic club in the in the state. And I remember helping out down there uh, in the office. In fact, it was in the office when Bobby Kennedy was shot. Really? Wow. Um, and wow. so I kind of that's sort of a defining moment for me. Wow. But yes, they've always been involved. The family's always been heavily involved in, in wow. politics in terms of being donors and, and trying to bring people in and get them ready to vote. It's interesting. Were you, did you go to Washington when she got sworn in and so on? Well, the first the first time that she got sworn in was during COVID. So I so they only allowed one one of us to sit up in the gallery. So I was up in the gallery watching her. And where normally the freshman representatives have their own little time because of the COVID and everything else, it was like they just did everybody at once. So it wasn't really a normal one. Oh, I got you. Okay. So she got sworn in on Tuesday, and then Wednesday was the insurrection. Uh-huh. The following Wednesday was the impeachment. The following Wednesday was oh, the wow. inauguration. Oh, wow, wow, So wow. she had a very strange first term. And now, of course, in the second term, right. she was supposed to get sworn in on Tuesday, and we were there to watch that, but that didn't happen because McCarthy didn't get elected speaker oh, right, until Friday. Right, right. And so Friday at 1.30 in the morning, she got, <laughs> she got wow. sworn in. So we were watching it on television. Um, so it used to be like people say, my my daughter or my son, the doctor, you say my daughter, the congresswoman. Right? That's right. Yes. What about your other kids? Are they in politics also? Not really in politics. Everybody's involved one way or other in the community. Um, our oldest son, who just had our first granddaughter, who just turned one. Oh, that's great. Is involved in business consulting and so on, but also very much following in. He chaired the JCC Maccabi Games oh. last year in San oh. Diego. Oh, wow. And... He's doing a lot. He's on the executive committee of the J, and he's the board chair for the Carlsbad Chamber of Commerce. Oh, wow. So okay. he's very involved at, at, in all sorts of different nonprofit work like that. Sarah's the congresswoman. Our third child uh, lives in New York and is involved in nonprofit consulting. Oh, okay. And they are right now very much involved in the Jewish Farmers Network. Oh, really? So how do you bring Judaism and Jewishness into farming? And then the youngest one is actually also lives in New York, and they teach. Humanity, seventh grade humanities, at a at a charter or actually at a 
school in uh, Brooklyn. Really? Wow. Very, very interesting. I wanted to ask you also about Jewish life in San Diego. I mean, I know we all know L.A. is the hub in California. Right. How large is the Jewish community in, San, in we San Diego? We actually are doing a demographic study right now to see. The last one we did was a long time ago, but by then it was 100,000, roughly 100,000 Jews. Very nice it's community. It's a very, very, very good community. Wow. A lot wow. of South Africans, a lot of Mexicans. Really? So it's a very diverse community, but it, but a lot of people are very involved as well. Very nice. So I know you have La Jolla, of course, is right. absolutely gorgeous. I think maybe... Right. Personally, maybe the nicest place in the United States. <laughs> Honestly, I think yeah. climate-wise, and it's just it's so beautiful. I mean, I love yeah. going. I love going there. Well, when we moved to when we moved to La Jolla in 1966, we were one of the first Jewish families to move in there. Really? Because prior to 1964, Jews were not allowed to live in La Jolla. There were deed restrictions. The, the realtors would not sell the Jews in La Jolla. And so, but when La Jolla wanted the University of California, San Diego, to come there to La Jolla. The university made it very clear that wasn't going to, they were common if that, if those type of right. things were still happening. And of course the Supreme Court outlawed right, it course, soon right. after. But so my Jewish education in La Jolla was in the backyards of other Jewish professors' homes. Really? My bar mitzvah was in the backyard of my parents' home led by a graduate student at UCSD. Really? Because there just wasn't any Jewish infrastructure there. Incredible. And now of course we have synagogues of all, right. of all, right. all, all types. All, all, all streams. All streams. There we go. And, and we have the JCC. Yeah. So we've really built up, in fact, the story goes that my synagogue, Bethel, which is a conservative synagogue, was able to buy the land it was on because they convinced the guy who was selling it, who was an anti-Semite, that the worst thing he could do to his neighbor that he didn't really like was sell to the Jews. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, so we them, used them against teach, it. Teach them a lesson, right? right. Absolutely. And, we, and then we just opened up a new Hill, uh, Hillel building at UC oh, San really? Diego. Oh, wow. That took 20 years because we had to fight through a bunch of anti-Semitism about about allowing it to be there. Unbelievable. No, it's a beautiful city. I happen to love San yeah. Diego. So we have to, of course, talk about your family and your father. I don't know your mother, obviously. I'm sure she's a great lady. Yes. But your father, obviously, is a world-renowned philanthropist and Erwin uh, Jacobs. Uh, so tell me, what was it like growing up in that home, the whole story of Qualcomm, how it started? And I mean, it's it's one of the great success right. stories in America. Well, what he we came out to... Uh, because he was going to teach at UC San Diego. In fact, he came out in 1964 to, on a sabbatical from MIT where he was teaching to work at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in, in Pasadena. Was offered the job at, at UC San Diego. Decided not to take it because all the family was back home. And so we moved back to Arlington, Massachusetts where we lived right outside Boston. And then one, the story goes, that one winter night as he was taking the bus back from MIT back to Arlington, with everybody's wool coat stinking because they were wet, going, what the heck are we still doing here when we could be in San Diego? So he called up, found out the job was still available, and we moved out that next summer. Really? So in oh, wow. 1966, we came to La Jolla. He taught at UCSD for uh, seven or eight years. He actually did a lot of work with, with Angela Davis, or met with Angela Davis. Um, so there was a lot of going on there with the third college at UC right. San Diego and what it was going to be called and what was, you know, with communications, was it going to be ethnic studies, well, et cetera. So he was very involved in that. And then on the side, he created a small consulting company with a couple of his friends called Linkabit. And that was, and so this was doing government work and so on uh, in digital communications because that's his specialty. He wrote right. a, co wrote a textbook, which is still in use today. He still really? gets still royalties today. from it. Not well, very many anymore. Okay. And it's been translated into many languages. And then after a couple of years, he realized that if he wanted to make this company real, he had to do, do it full time. And so he left academia. And then went and started, and then moved Qualcomm up to uh, not Qualcomm, well, a bit up to being a major company. Eventually, he was able to sell that company 
to Maycom. Um, still worked there for five years and ran it and then retired, quote unquote. And so we were sort of on a trip and he was talking with some of the other senior leadership at Lincoln at the time about what they wanted to do. And so he started Qualcomm. And Qualcomm was, again, just supposed to be a small consulting company doing digital <laughs> well, work for the government. Didn't that change? <laughs> okay. And then uh, the first product, uh, they were doing some work for a company doing two-way communication, satellite communications for trucks called Omnitrax. And so at the end of the day, the company couldn't pay for the engineering work that had been done. So the deal was that, they, that Qualcomm would take over the project and the IP and so on. And so we turned it into Omnitrax, which oh, ended wow. up being a tremendous success. Yeah, right. And then from there, then they started going into the cellular phone business and working on having it be CDMA, co-division multiple access, right. instead of time division multiple access that Europe had adopted that was sort of de facto standard. And so it was a whole thing of changing the entire status of digital communications. And then so the small little company became a very large company. Oh, yeah, right. So- <laughs> Eventually, he what, sold it. Is that what happened? Well, it became public. Became public traded company. Right. Right. Amazing. So, so, so Lincoln Bit. I was employee fifteen. So I did all sorts of stuff there, from janitorial to administration. I was the manufacturing department for a while. So there are some circuit boards that that I actually worked on. They were up in space and some NASA oh, really? satellites. Oh, wow. And then at Lincoln at Qualcomm, then I was employee number six fifty. So then I did software engineering there for a while, and then I worked in, and then I moved to HR after taking a year off to raise money for the JCC and they worked with schools and school districts with math and science education. Wow, unbelievable. Wow. It's, a, it's a legend. I mean, your yeah. father obviously is a, is a legendary personality yes. in, the, in the world, but not just the Jewish world, in the world and where he's known for his great philanthropy. And obviously, you know, yeah. you learned it from him. There's right. no question about it. And Qualcomm, if I'm not mistaken, is, is it one of the stadiums named after? The stadium in San Diego was named Qualcomm until we had we got one of the best name rights deals ever. The city, when they expanded the stadium, needed $18 million to finish it. So Qualcomm said, we'll give you $18 million. You'll call it Qualcomm for 20 years. And nowadays, it's like $18 million for a year. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so that actually ended. And then... San Diego State was able to get the property that the old stadium sat on, tore down the old stadium. So now the new stadium is called Snapdragon Stadium, which is one of the products that Qualcomm makes. Oh, I see. Okay, okay. But remember Qualcomm, everyone knew it because yeah. the stadium is always good and you have right. a stadium named after it. Right. So when you look at the American Jewish community and someone who's been a leader, what do you see as the biggest challenges that we have that we have to really try to overcome? I think one of the major challenges is making sure people feel positive about being Jewish that really this is something that people feel deep in their heart, that they're excited about, that it makes them feel good about themselves, it makes them feel understand that they, they're part of this larger group. Right. And that the values that we espouse as Jews is something that they can work in no matter where they're thinking about in terms of human rights, in terms of repairing the world, in terms of doing its vote, but to make them feel proud of being Jewish. I think that's one of the major things that we really have to work on. No, I, agree. I definitely agree with you. And I think also proud of Israel. Yeah. You know, I mean, being proud of a Jew means you should be proud of Israel. And the only way you get to be proud of Israel is if you know a little bit about it. If you don't, you know, people think that these are very simplistic answers. We know, right. you know, that it's not simplistic. It's a complicated world we're living in right. here. But I agree. I think if you could you could try to do that, it's great. And you've been involved in a lot of things, not just your Jewish world, but charter schools, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is a great thing. And yep. uh and also even an incubator that you started here in Israel, right? Uh, well, I, I didn't start it, but I got involved in it. So we actually did a couple of things in 2000, my wife and I. One, we started the High Tech High Charter Schools, which was the business community in San Diego saying, 
we have to find ways to attract more engineers to San Diego. And we also want to increase the number of homegrown engineers. And one of the things, so they had a group committees that were looking at cost of living, transportation, right. housing, ed, and education. So the education piece was how do we affect San Diego Unified, which is the second largest school district in California and the seventh largest in the country, and how do we and make it better? And so about 40 of us from very diff different companies, all high-tech companies in San Diego, getting together for about two years trying to figure this out. And so we decided we were going to create a school, and that school would be a lab school, and that lab oh, really? school would then affect San Diego UC, uh, Single Unified. And so we finally decided to be a charter school. And then the Gates Foundation came in and said, gee, we'd like to give you $6 million to build 10 more schools. Huh. And we said, we have no staff, we have no faculty, uh, we have no building, <laughs> we have no students, we have no... Uh, Results. They said, that's okay. We like your design principles, which were personalization. So making sure that every student was known in the school. So we're small schools, four to 500 students, that we have advisory groups where they're cross uh, grades so that 12th graders are teaching the ninth graders in this case about how, you know, what the culture is like and so on. And, and the 11th graders are talking to the 10th graders about taking SATs and getting ready for college right. and, all, and all those things. And then if there's any issues that are going on, that people know about them. So our teachers all at least once make a home visit to find out what non-school issues keep oh, kids really? from learning. Oh, that's important. And it's uh, all very and it's very interesting to see what's going on there. And so that was personalization. The second one was real world connection. These are young adults growing up. And so what do we do to connect them to this real world that they're going to see after they get out of high school, whether they're going straight to college right. or going straight into the workforce? And so we bring adults into school. We make sure that uh, the relationship between the students and the teachers is, you know, on, a lot of them are on a first-name basis. And they get very involved and close with their teachers. And they're involved in all sorts of parts of projects that we try to the world. So, for instance, our 10th grade bio class one year in the summer went to Tanzania to work with rangers over there to create oh, wow. a DNA barcode really? database oh. to help prosecute poachers. If you take the skin and the feet off of, of an animal, it's really tough to tell what it is. So the poacher would claim it was a cow. And it wasn't, it was a rhinoceros. But with DNA, you can, you can create a database and, and do all that. And so that was one of the projects they worked on. We had another group that worked with the UC San Diego graduate student on creating a low-cost way to get his measurement instruments up into the atmosphere. Oh, wow. So we try and find projects like that that the kids can do. And then every junior, 11th grader in our schools takes a month and does an internship in business off campus. Wonderful. Well, is it a hard place to get into? I mean, kids are... We know. have about a three to four to one ratio of applications oh, to really? spaces. And it's all a lottery system. Oh, okay. And so we look at uh, U.S. Census data to see how many school children are in different zip code clusters because we want to have a representative look of what the San Diego County looks like. And while we can't use race or ethnicity as, a, as an emission factor, but zip codes on their face are, are neutral. But right. we all know there's housing segregation. Right. So we can look at that and say, right. okay, yeah, how can okay. we create what yeah. we want? And so every you know we, our applications are open from... October to February, and basically we're, what we need to know is where you live and what school you're going to That's right great. now. And then in March, we hold the computer draws names and says, is there you. space for the school right. with that zip code? Yes, no. Very good idea. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So you've done a lot of interesting things. So I want to ask you one more question about a little bit about the JCC, which I just found out. I didn't know until we were in Bahrain, uh -huh. and that's really about the JWB, right? and that uh, you actually helped supply the chaplains for the military. Right. How, how did that come about? So the JWB, the Jewish Welfare Board, Jewish Chaplain Council, was actually created in 1917 in order to 
provide to recruit Jewish soldiers for World War I and provide for their spiritual needs while they are in the service. And so since then, one of the things that we are very proud of and that we do is that we go and recruit young rabbis to become chaplains. And Wonderful. now we're actually re recruiting cantors to become chaplains in the military because really? it's a major shortage. Sure. And then support the chaplains so that they can support the troops. Right. And we do it with a variety of ways. Of, we, you know, we have some scholarships we can give out as people. That's great. Uh, they're going in there. And it's actually getting very difficult these days because there's not a whole lot of kids going into rabbinic school in the first place. Right. And, right. and then right. we want to get them to, to go into, into the military. I have had the honor of also, we had a program called Tours for the Troops. And so there are many communities around the country that got together and sponsored new tourist schools that oh, really? go out into the field. Out into the field, right. That's great. And so, so about two years ago, I went up to Camp David with a small group, and we dedicated a tour in the cha multi-faith chapel they have up there. Really? And last year, we were down in Norfolk, and we actually dedicated a— Navy. In, for the Navy. Right. And dedicated a tour around the USS George Washington, the carrier. And we've done a lot of work with working with the chaplains that we that we know about in different That's areas. It's a, a great thing. And another program we've started to work on is how do we provide summer camp experiences for military kids wherever they are in the world. Right. And also we've actually created a virtual ECE program so that we can provide Jewish education over the internet to students that are in Japan or right. wherever else they're, they're stationed. Remote learning kind of. Thing. Remote learning. Right? It's wonderful. No, listen, you know, Gary, you've done you've done great things in a yep. quiet way. But in such a very, very positive way, it's yeah. proud. One, so one, of the, one of the programs that we didn't touch on, we called the JITLI, Jacobs International Teen Leadership Institute, where we took 10 Jewish kids from San Diego, five boys and five girls, 10 Jewish kids from Sharhanegev, which is a community right on the border with Gaza, again, five boys and five girls, 10 Bedouin students from Segev Shalom, a, a Bedouin community near wow. Sharhanegev, and 10 Palestinian boys and girls from Gaza at the wow. time. And so we would work with these groups in their individual cultural community identities from January to June, and then we'd have a program. So the first That's year good. we did Spain for a week, so we look at Muslim-Jewish relations from a historical point of view with the Muslims in control, and then back to Israel for a week to look at it from a, from a wow. Jews in control. Then we went. Then we got increased, so we went to the U.S. because because San Diego and Tijuana, right. you have a first world city and a third world city. And so, how do, and, and so how does San Diego handle this diverse right. population that it, it has? And so it actually has been, it was a very successful program. We ran it for 18 years. And in these cohorts of 10, I always believed that two really got it. Six know they got something out of it, and two figure they got a free trip out of it. I got you. But we did a 10-year study, and in that 10-year study, we found even those two that thought they only got a free trip out of it, their attitudes changed, the way they talk has changed. And these kids really understand, and these are juniors in high school, and so we really got the ability to change the way they looked at each other and talked about each other and got to know each other. So when they were, when the Jewish kids, the Israeli Jewish kids were going in the army, they talked about teaching respect to their other squad mates about how to, how to talk to and, and deal with the, with uh, the Palestinians. For instance. The Palestinians talked about the fact, well, they saw young men growing up in their camps and they understood how they would feel like they wanted to go blow themselves up. Yep. But then realizing that after this program, that wasn't the way to get anything done. Exactly right. And the Americans, of course, will look at all this going, you know, how does America fit in and how can you, right. the U.S. be there? And then, of course, use a lot on their college entrance applications. Right. Right. So we still have alum that, that talk to us all the time over no, these listen, years. No, listen, no question. More that we could facilitate people getting to know one another, then the world changes. And that's right. great. So now what I wanted to do is just really quickly, I told you we have this quick round uh, that I call a lightning question. So just kind of 
try to give me whatever you think is your first uh -huh. response. No, you know, no, no pressure. <laughs> One, who's the greatest person you ever met? My father, because he came from nothing. He grew up in the Depression. Uh, my grandfather was a serial entrepreneur, but part of that included being a bookie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he enjoyed gambling. Okay. Uh, and so really, you know, uh, he came from New Bedford, Massachusetts. And the JCC there was the safe place because at, after church on Sundays, the Italian and Polish kids would want to come out and beat up the you. Jews. So you, you hit out JCC. Right. Wow. Okay. I figured that was going to be your answer. What about the greatest person you think in history, the history of the world? Who would you say it is? Um, I think Moses is, is a major character because, you know, here's somebody who didn't want leadership, right. but it was thrust upon him. It's true. And he, and he lived up to, the, to what was expected of him. I agree. Now, I know you've met a lot of people. You've traveled all over. Is there anyone in the world that you'd like to meet that you haven't met yet? There's a couple of heads of state that I, that I think. I'll give you one or two. Um, well, Putin's not in the in the. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but not not because I'd be interested to find out what his thinking is. Right. Okay. Um, I don't believe anything he's doing. Right. But I'd be interested to hear what right. his thinking is. And then I think that uh, some of the countries around that area, like Moldova, we actually right. have a JCC in Moldova that's named after oh, the really? family. Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. What about who's the, and once again, you've been on the circuit, you've heard a lot of speakers. Who's the best speaker you ever heard? Um, I really like listening to Danny Cordes. Oh, Danny Cordes. He's excellent. Yeah. He's excellent. Right. Okay. What about, and I think I know the answer because you kind of gave mm -hmm. to me before. Is there any one moment that you'll, in history that, that you live through that you'll, you'll never forget? Well, certainly the the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Yeah, wow. Well, <laughs> now, where were you? You were. I was literally in the office of La Jolla Democratic Party, which was a little small office down in downtown La Jolla, and I was helping out there. And then it was on television, and it was just you know, wow, unbelievable. Yeah, I think I know the answer for this also, but I'm not sure. But if you if you were a foxhole, who do you want with you? <laughs> My wife. Your wife. Okay. I knew you. I knew you'd answer that. Question. I knew that's what you say. What, what's your favorite holiday? Our favorite holiday is really uh, Passover because it's one where everybody comes together. Right, right. And it, Hanukkah is fun too, but it's become a little materialistic. But Passover is pretty pure, and we all have a good time with it. What about, I know you've been on a lot of vacation. What's your favorite vacation place? You know, we just got back from being down in the Bahamas area, and uh, it was really fascinating down there. And and learning about the Jewish history of that area yeah, as well. Yeah, a lot, a lot. Yeah. The, uh, Synagogue and uh, where was that? In one, yeah, Curacao. Right, uh, Curacao, but also in um, now I can't remember what the name of the island was. But anyway, yes, right. where the earliest Jewish settlers were. In fact, those are the settlers oh, from right. there that actually came to Rhode Island and started yeah, that synagogue right, right, there. Right, right. What about your favorite author? Who's that? I like reading um, all sorts of different action novels. Okay. So I don't, you know, I don't really have a favorite author. I just like the, the genre. Okay. Uh, any place you'd like to see that you haven't been yet? Uh, I would like to get off to more areas in, like near Serbia and that and, oh, and that area over there. Okay. Um, Croatia. I haven't been there yet, so I'd really like to get that okay. opportunity. Okay. It sounds good. I'm going to ask you one simple one. And favorite late night snack? <laughs> uh, my favorite late night snack is probably pretzels. Pretzels. Okay. I like them myself. Anyway. Listen, thank you so much, Gary, for thank being you. on the program. Uh, for our listening audience, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure to, to interview Gary here right in Jerusalem. And uh, I hope you really get to listen to this podcast because Gary is a person who's done so much in his lifetime. And I hope now by you listening to the podcast, 
hundreds and thousands of people will really get to appreciate what yeah. somebody can do. Thank you very much. Thank Have you a great very day. much. Appreciate it very my, much. My pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savitsky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.